Welcome to the Jazz Podcast. In conversation with musicians from the UK jazz scene and beyond. And now your hosts, Rob Cope and Tara Vinton. Hello and welcome to the Jazz Podcast. I am your host, Rob Cope, and today we're going to talk to Rob Buckland, an incredible British saxophone player, an absolute master of the instrument. He has a phenomenal book out online, which you can buy, called Playing the Saxophone, and it's an absolute masterpiece of explaining how the saxophone works and how our bodies work in relation to it. So if you're into the sax as much as I am, then this is an absolute must-have. I literally teach with this book next to me at all times so that if anyone asks a question I might actually know the answer. Rob has a gig coming up in Cambridge on the 24th of September at 3pm. He'll be playing some works by Willem Simcock, by Claire Cope, my incredible wife, and by Jenny Watson. Uh, So well worth going to check that out. A solo saxophone set at at 3 o'clock. I'll be there as well with Claire, so come and say hi to us all. It'll be lovely. Um, So let's have a listen to Rob Buckland's track, The Longest Day. This is from the album Sax of Gold. This band is Andy Scott's Group S, and this album also featured Bob Mincer, one of the many collaborations that that Rob has been a part of with Bob over the years, because his uh, Polo Saxophone Quartet has also done some amazing pieces with Bob, which are well worth checking out. So, The Longest Day, this is Rob's composition. Hope you enjoy it. with Rob Buckland tonight. This is a show I've wanted to make for many years. Hello, Rob. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Largely due to your culinary efforts this evening. You've had a marvellous curry and we're putting a large dent in a bottle of wine, which is... um, I'm proud of us. This is a big dent. I'm feeling slightly like I've been coerced. (laughs) Come for dinner, have a drink. And then the mics go on when you least expect it. Sorry, everyone. That should be a disclaimer Mm. at the beginning of this show. It'll either be a great show or it'll never be aired. We'll do it again in a coffee shop. (laughs) Yeah, it might be worse. Let's have some fun anyway. Let's have a talk. So, Rob, tell our lovely listeners about yourself. Oh, good grief. Um, Or I can tell them about you if you prefer. Do you tell them about me and I'll fill in the gaps? be interesting to see what you think I am and what I do. You are one of the great saxophone players 
of this country. And when I say that, what I mean specifically with the saxophone is that you can really play it. You know, the, the saxophone goes into many genres. We're really lucky to be a young instrument that can go every which way. But your fundamental ability to play it is second to none. And that makes me very happy. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad I'm making you happy. Uh, thank you. That's, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's quite a compliment coming from you. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, it's that sort of echoes with the way I approach uh, playing the thing and teaching it and thinking about it. Um, I, was, I was talking to some of my students very recently about this, the, the, the notion that at the RNCM in Manchester, where I, I'm very proud to have been teaching for the last 25 years this year, goodness me. Um, it's like a silver jubilee. There it was a silver a... jubilee. It was it was not marked quite the same as the silver <laughs> <laughs> uh, No boat parade. I did get a now. long service certificate, though, so that's... that's um, oh, that's amazing. Which is very nice. And a little... And they give you a little... They give you a little um, gift card of like 150 quid sort of gift card, which I decided to re-gift back to the college and have set up a saxophone prize in wow. my name, which will happen this year, which is going to be a creative saxophone award. A creative sax- saxophone. The, the students are challenged to do something with the instrument, to create a piece of music or write a piece of music, arrange, reapportion a piece of music, so, so to create something for the saxophone that didn't exist until they got a hold of it, and then they all present all of those, and we'll pick the one that we like the best. But the, that the sounds up- really hard. I know. So, wow. so the upshot is that that there'll be, you know, there are nineteen, eighteen students at the moment. Um, so there'll be, I imagine, they're all going to have a go. So there'll be eighteen new pieces of music that now exist for the saxophone. Um, I'm trying to think what I would do. That's such a great challenge. Oh, no. Exactly. I think anything. It can be for a quartet. It can be solo. It can be ensemble. It, it, they just have to create something that they would want to play in a performance that shows who they are as individuals. Wow. To add to the to add to the canon. Um, it's been it's been a driving force of pretty much everything I've done as a professional musician since since leaving college is about commissioning creating new music creating that sort of creating the sound world that you operate in mm. that you know the saxophone in in a classical sense was in a very sort of transitional stage when i was a student back in the mid 80s because you and your peers didn't study saxophone necessarily you know there wasn't there wasn't mm. the same like opportunity there is now no it was a very different landscape i mean i I grew up, I started on the clarinet when I was about 12 and got in the days of, the good old days of free instrumental lessons in schools. Was it like through your music service then? It was through my school. Right. The school. The school and it had a music department and uh, a really good head of music. And when when we went there, it was a boys school. Um, There were 1900 boys in this school. It's awful. And, And... the first, when I was in my first year at secondary school, the school did a production of Carmina Burana, only using the students from the school. So there was a school orchestra and a school chorus that did Carmina Burana. Huge thing. Wow. And then that head of music left at the end of my first year. 
and was replaced by somebody with different a different sort of vision and the focus on the classical and the and the kind of traditional went out the window and the choir went from being 150 strong to like 12 in the space of about a term and by the time I got to A-level, two, there was me and one other guy did A-level music out of 1,900 kids. That's a very um, small percentage. Which is a very small percentage <laughs> indeed, you know. Um, but the, the, the guy that came in ran a big band. He was into big bands and stuff. So I learned, learned, did lots of kind of big band stuff. And then they needed some saxophones. And I think I was mucking about in a rehearsal when I was sort of 35th clarinet in the wind band. And got told to go and, you know, you at the back, stop mucking about. We've just got a saxophone in in the cupboard. Go and get that out and learn to play it. And there was a tenor sax and an alto sax. And the other guy that was mucking about the back with me was a guy called David Cox, who's now principal saxophone in the well, bandmaster, drum master in the, in the central band of the Royal Air Force, and who I still keep in touch with and still see occasionally when I go and talk to those guys. So, um, and he got there first, so he got the tenor, because it was the biggest one, and I got left with the alto, and that's how it started. And, and I, I was sort of, um, it sounds ridiculous now in the, in, the, in, the, in the world we live in now, but I was the only saxophone player in my music centre region who had an instrument. Wow. So within a fortnight, they were like, right, well, we need a saxophone in the music centre on Thursday nights, you can do that. Great, off we go. And then, well, Saturday mornings is the regional music centre. Can you come and play in that? Yeah, I can do that. Well, there's a big band. Can you play in that? Well, I'll give it a go. And then the county band were like, oh, there's a guy that plays saxophone. Well, we've got three others. We can nearly make a sax section. So just through dint of ownership wow. of this free instrument from yeah. school. Um, I Did got you all... immediately feel like this This is something I like? I, liked, I like that this. it felt slightly subversive. You know, I played the clarinet. I liked the clarinet, but my dad was a big clarinet fan. And I think sort of subliminally in the background was quite instrumental in me starting on the clarinet, even though he's not musical himself. He's a massive music fan. You know, he's a massive Frank Sinatra fan, actually, which is, I owe him a huge amount for listening to Nelson Riddle and mm. Frank Sinatra in my entire formative years. Um, he's a, He's a practical man, but not a musical man. I mean, there's a lovely story. I remember when they, the, the Christmas at the end of my first year, second year, I can't remember, at secondary school, when I'd been on this school clarinet for a while, and the school said, right, you know, if, if you're going to carry on with the instrument, you need to buy one now because these need to go back into the system. And he'd obviously saved up all his spare cash. There wasn't a lot of spare cash around, you know, with two younger brothers and my what dad. What did your dad do? He works in the, in the uh, post office, British Telecom. Right. Just in the planning department. Um, mum didn't work. She stayed at home, looked after the kids. So it was, you know, single income three, you know, there was not a lot of money sloshing around. So he'd saved up to buy me a clarinet for Christmas. I got there, and I remember Christmas morning opening this box and there was a Elkhart clarinet, plastic Elkhart clarinet. You know, and got the thing out and I've been playing recorder at school anyway, so I could blow and move my fingers around. So I sort of picked it up, put it together and played Don't Cry For Me Argentina on it, which was like really famous at the time. It was the kind of hit when Evita was around and all that stuff and it'd been doing it at school in recorder clubs. So I kind of knew this thing. 
play this thing. And I remember my dad's jaw sort of dropping that I'd managed to get a sound out of the thing because my mum told me afterwards that he, being a practical man, he'd been to the shop, he'd bought the clarinet, which he would have found very stressful because he's out of his comfort zone in that world, got it home, and he decided to put it together to check it would work before he gave it to me on Christmas <laughs> Day, so I wasn't disappointed. <laughs> so so he put it all together. Now, he put all the bits together. So yeah. he put the bell on and the bottom joint, the top joint, Did the, barrel, have, like, the mouthpiece, the ligature, the reed, and the cap. Oh, put it all on. Oh, my God. Cap in his mouth, no sound coming out of the instrument. And he'd been back to the shop. My mum told me this after years later. He said he'd been back to the shop twice and insisted on a replacement instrument twice. This cap, listeners, if you don't play the saxophone or clarinet, (laughs) this is to just protect the reed, which is a very, very thin piece of wood from getting broken. This is not something that, that would help you make a sound and also sorry dad if you do ever listen to this sorry uh, for exposing that um <laughs> uh, yeah uh, apologies so yeah apparently that had all happened and then i picked it up and blew it and it worked and he was just sort of gobsmacked but um you must have been overwhelmingly proud cap or not i guess so yeah i think yeah, yeah absolutely i think they still are you know they still oh. come to things yeah, yeah, occasionally yeah um but yeah, it all started like that, just through sort of more luck than judgment, really. And and I don't know what school was like for you. I didn't have a particularly happy time at secondary school. I didn't like being in a big boys' school. Um, uh, there was a the school was a secondary modern. It was this thing that was dreamed up in the eighties, where you'd have the the kind of the the grammar school and the comprehensive school in the same thing. And I was in the grammar bit because I'd passed my 11 plus, which you had to do back in the day. And that just meant that all of the comprehensive boys would try and beat you up all the time because you were the posh, clever one. Yeah. And then you'd come to school with a single clarinet case. Now, you know this. There isn't a single clarinet case in the world that doesn't look, doesn't basically say, kick me. Yeah. You can't even carry a beige single clarinet case. What you need is a one that's like unnecessarily large that could yeah. maybe be for cash <laughs> exactly. instead of a clarinet. So you just attracted, you know, the rugby players, mm. you know, the sporty lads and all that. And so the music block, as it did for so many of us, became the sanctuary. You know, you'd go and hide there and you'd sky off games so you didn't get beaten up. And you'd go and play the clarinet and people would go, well done, you're good at something. So suddenly you'd feel like you belong and that's that's... That was very much part of why that whole process started for me, I think. Um, and then and then sort of fell into the county wind bands and going up to all those, you know, this is in Kent, I grew up in Kent, so there was a Kent School's wind orchestra. You'd be doing all those amazing tours all over, you know, Yugoslavia as it was in those days, and all wow. over Europe and Germany, incredible tours. And then they started the Kent Youth Jazz Orchestra and I was the first person to play the lead alto in that thing. And I remember Don Rendell coming to guest and Kenny Baker and all those guys. You know, those things, those massive formative times where this guy comes in and plays the saxophone. You never heard anything mm. like it before. And he comes over and says hello and well done. Yeah. And all that, and then going up to the school's prom and playing in there and going and watching my teacher, this fantastic, my saxophone teacher, who actually was a sort of trad clarinet player, uh, saxophone player called, called Randy Colville, Glaswegian. That's used funny, to, we've both got I know. Glaswegian teachers. Exactly, How and he used, to come in and he used to come in for lessons and he'd, uh, he'd chain smoke all the way through my lessons. <laughs> In this tiny practice room with no windows, an in, internal thing in the school music block. And he would chain smoke rollies and he'd, he'd get through four in a 20 minute lesson. And I used to stand there with his Mac on and he, and he, has to, he used to put his cigarette inwards, you know, so that the ashes on the inside and the smoke would go up his sleeve and come out his collar. I remember seeing it all coming out the back of his collar. And he'd sort of sit there at the piano 
writing out arrangements for whatever gig they were doing that night with the he used to play with a group called the Midnight Follies Orchestra with Digby Fairweather and Alan Elston and all these amazing players, Keith Nichols. And and he'd be sitting at the piano scribbling out scribbling out an arrangement and um and I'd be in the corner sort of footling my way through some grade six piece. And he'd go, uh, hang on a minute, Robbie, hang on a minute, clonk, and he'd play this chord on the piano and play, and he'd write the thing, oh, carry on, carry on, sounds great. And that would, but I, he was my hero, I loved this guy, and he used to say, he used to give me, come in with tickets, and he'd say, um, uh, I've got these tickets, we're playing at the Purcell Room tonight, or the Queen Elizabeth Hall in London with the Midnight Follies, got a couple of comps, one if you, you and your dad like to come, you know, we used to go all the way up to London on the train, and, and sitting in the front row and watch this gig and these guys on stage and they've all got like a scotch in their hand and a cigar or everyone's smoking and drinking and and he said come back to the artist bar in the interval and, I, and you get up on the stage with my dad and walk across the stage in the interval and go in the artist bar which used to be right on the side of the stage oh, wow where everyone so was just, have to go in like yeah a, like a, anyone who wasn't in a number yeah. was in there having a drink yeah. constantly you know and then it was just you couldn't see for the smoke and you'd walk in and there was that banter going on and all the kind of camaraderie. And just and me going in there as a little, sort of 14-year-old school lab with my dad. My dad just be really uncomfortable with the whole thing. And, 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 and you know, Randy kind of go, oh, Robbie, how are you? Come and meet the lads and taking me off and meeting everybody. And everybody's shaking my hand. And, and I just was thinking, that's what I want to do with my life. I want to feel like I belong yeah. to that community of people who are going out and doing this amazing thing and then having a drink and a laugh. And that's sort of fueled everything I've done ever since. It's the way I, I like the department of the RNCM to run. It feels like a family. It feels like we're, I hope to my students, you know, they all feel like they're part of a family and we all have a drink together. And I found that really healthy. Yeah, it is really healthy like, because we're all going to be together when they leave and we're going to yeah. work together and carry on and look after each yeah. other when we have bad times and good times and all that stuff. And I also liked when I was there as a student that like you would have classes where you would be really blunt and honest with each other and then you'd go to the bar and it would be like a line in the sand. Yeah. We're done now. Let's like go in, have a drink and yeah, yeah. just be humans. And what I now realize in this moment, looking back is like, it's almost like the class is carrying on, you know, at that point that you go to the bar and you learn, like, no matter what's just happened, you have to get along. Like you can't work in this industry if you're not yeah, yeah, able yeah. to get along with people because yeah, yeah, yeah. like, it's one of those things you say to people at college and it sort of sounds like a bit of a cliche. But the more, you know, if you're ever booking a gig and it's like, it's your responsibility to book people, you, my first thing, thought is like, well, who's going to show up and like be polite? Yeah, yeah. It doesn't matter how they, like everyone yeah, sounds yeah, yeah, yeah. good. It's, yeah, it is above and beyond a certain level of making a noise at the right time on the instrument. Mm. We all pretty much sound the same. So, who, you know, who do you want to spend time with? Yeah. Yeah, I remember hearing that a lot, but it sort of makes sense to me now. It certainly, I think it's, I, I mean, I don't know. The musical world changes all the time, and you feel part of different, different bits of bits of it. But you know, we, we used to congregate. You know, when I was a student, like I sound like an old dinosaur, but pre-mobile phones, pre-internet, pre—I remember getting an answer phone in my fourth year at college. So it was the first time someone could ring and leave a message, so you didn't miss a gig because you just weren't at home, and, and so. It was, you know, so if I, you know, I started sort of working with the, some of the orchestras in Manchester in my second year at college. Not, again, not because I was particularly good, but because there were so few players around and, you know, 
you, you just got a bit of an in. And then once you were in, you'd sit in the BBC Phil playing and then the orchestral manager would come out during the break and go, while you're here, can I check your diary for the thing that's coming up next week or the week after? Oh, and then wow. if you were in and you didn't disgrace yourself, they would ask you, well, while you're here, here's the contract for the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. So by being there all the time, you got to be there all the time. Yeah. And then the other way that work would come in once you would be, we used to meet at Band on the Wall which is the most fabulous um, jazz venue. Well, it's a venue now, more than a jazz venue, but it used to be a jazz venue in Manchester. And I mean, I've got, I, I did one of those really nerdy things in my first year at college and kept a scrapbook. And I've, I've got a band on the wall brochure from the three seasons of 1985, 1986. And six nights a week, there's a jazz gig on or, wow. a, Latin, or a Latin gig. It's not, there's not DJs. I mean, you know, the world's changed. Yeah. That's fine. But it was, it was a jazz venue six nights a week. Everybody you've ever heard of was in there. There was a Latin night and Dave Hassels or Pitos would play there every second Wednesday. And, you know, there was just regular groups, there were mm. visiting groups. And we'd all meet at Band on the Wall. All the musicians in Manchester would meet at Band on the Wall after all their gigs had, finishes, had finished. The last set would be going off at Band on the Wall. And there was a guy called Horace that used to work on the door and he would let all the musicians in for free. So we'd all go in, watch the last set, have a beer at the bar, and yeah. you'd all chat, oh, so-and-so's over there. And they go, actually, I'm, I need a sax player. Are you free Thursday to come and do a thing? And you go, oh, I can't do it because actually I'm on that thing over there. But actually, hang on a minute, he's on that gig. I'll tell you what, if he comes in for me and does that, I could come and do your thing. And you just all talk to each other and <laughs> fix it up yeah. so that you ended up with the right team That's perfect. on the right gig. So, yeah. you know, it was born with sort of interpersonal relationships and friendships and who was who liked working with who and who didn't like working mm. with who. So, you know, I guess there were people on the outside of that that perhaps see it differently. But my experience of that was that it was a great way to get to know all of the faces in the business of all generations. Yeah. And somehow find your your place in it. And all those early gigs of, you know, we've got a rehearsal band playing in the pub over the Britain's Protection uh, um, on a Sunday afternoon. There's no money in it, but everybody's on it if you want to come and have a play. You know, and you go and yeah. play on these gigs and you get to meet people and then you might get a dep on a thing. And yeah, it was all done by going out and meeting people and playing and having a go and hanging around with the older guys and trying to figure out how to get through the gig <laughs> without going home in tears at the, at the banter that was being thrown at mm. you. It was just banter, but that's just how it was. You know, everybody had a nickname and everybody got got shouted at and yeah. that was just how it used to be you know it was a real baptism of fire but by the time you got through those college years there wasn't much that was left that was going to scare you yeah i remember my first nigel gig was like that i'd never played with them i'd never rehearsed and they had a gig up north and enough sax players didn't want to come up that i myself and anthony brown were summoned to the hallowed um you know, saxophone section, and I can't remember now. Maybe I was even like playing lead alto on this gig, and I, I get up and behind me as I breathe in to start. You know, we like sight reading. We're just trying to cling on for dear life, and yeah, I yeah, breathe yeah, in yeah. to take a solo. And someone behind me starts screaming, "Hitchcock, not Sanborn, you fucker!" <laughs> <laughs> and I was yeah, yeah, like, yeah. "What the hell is going yeah. on here?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. And at the time, I was like, "Oh my!" But now I just think, "Oh, what a fucking great thing to say!" Yeah, you know, I know, and it was honest. Give it to yeah. right on it. And there was no. He was doing me a favour. I not, was offended at yeah, the time. I know, I know, exactly, <laughs> and exactly. And I think we've got, we've not, we've got a bit more. Uh, we're not as good at receiving that kind of honest 
immediate criticism mm. that has no agenda beyond that moment. You know, we, t- yeah. we there's a danger, I think, that people start taking things a bit seriously. Mm. Um, all anyone was ever trying to do was play well and have a great time. Yeah. You know, we were chatting about this earlier. Um, the, 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 the commodity, I think, you know, the, the most enduring quality in any musician's life is your ability to self-regulate so that you care so much about what you're doing that you turn up having thought about it so much that you deliver such a high quality product that nobody notices yeah and so nobody screams at you no i want this or because you've already gone oh i know what this is yeah there we are they've done the job that's why that wrong note I played the last time we played together has bothered me for so long. It was a classic, listeners. It was a classic. One, one. Somebody once wrote an anonymous review of me online um, after a, a, this <coughs> band that our friend Jack Davies used to run, Flea Circus, with accordion, double bass. I remember that. Yeah, it was a great band. One night, this this anonymous person had come to the NLT North London Tavern. We played a gig, and the review was like. Flea Circus created a beautiful atmosphere with a wonderful accordion solo from Aidan Shepherd. However, my entire night was ruined by <laughs> one long, loud blow of the bass clarinet from Robco. <laughs> Such a great review. And I was like, yes, I'm getting through to people now. I hope that's on your yeah. website. Yeah, it needs to be in the testimonials. My entire night was ruined by yeah. one note from Robco. Yeah, I mean, just one note. That should be right done. under. Yeah. My job is done. Perfect. But I really do care. Yeah, you know, I know. That no one scarred me because I never meant it. It shouldn't scar you because, you know. No, it did for a while. Mainly not because I did it, but because I was like, how did I let this happen? You know? Anyway. It's funny, isn't it? Those, those tricks of the mind, those things that are going on in your head when you're playing and you, yeah. you know, you're on a gig and it was, you know, it was brilliant to have you with the section. You know, it was a great job. And I, I've done it myself a million times. You know, you're playing around and you think, oh, I'm doing all right here. Honk, right. Mm. As soon as you just, you just, somehow you zone out and then off you go. The minute you think that you're doing it. Key right. signatures for me. Yeah. Oh, shocker. Mm. And I'm always, you know, always all screaming at my students about it as well, but only because I know what it feels like because it's always me. Yeah. Shocking. Yeah, what bothered me most about that was not picking up on your body language. I was trying. And those around me. Yeah, I could I see you putting it in your mouth exactly, in slow motion. Exactly. You should, you, you. <laughs> and then it was too late. That's something that you just learn with years of experience is like, if you don't sense the people around you breathing in, you're probably not in the right To be place. fair to Rob, for anyone out there that's still listening at this point, which I imagine would be about three people, probably. I imagine my dad's turned off by now, certainly. Oh, last week um, was a good week. I think you'd be surprised how many people <laughs> enjoy this. To be fair to Rob, it was one of those things where we hadn't had time to rehearse properly. And train the, strikes, wasn't it? There were we train strikes. We were all late bit. for the rehearsal. We topped and tailed, and there was one of those open vamps at the beginning, and the conductor said, I'll give you a cue in before the singer starts, and then the singer started before the cue. Some fucker had written the lyrics on my part. Yes, so they'd I written the lyrics. It, it was very, very, very dangerous. To be fair, one of the trombones came storming in mm. after you much, much louder, and I think I did hear a laugh from the audience when they came in, and I yeah. don't think I think you got away with it. Yeah, I asked some people I had planted in the crowd who said they didn't notice anything. Well, it's a funny thing, you know, I, I play on the Bridgewater Hall a lot. You know, you sit there in the middle of it and it feels like everyone in the room is looking at you. It feels like you are enormous, that kind of, what well, they call it, your id, where you're looking out from inside you and you, you feel like you're massive and everyone's looking at you. And then you go and watch a concert at the Bridgewater Hall and you sit at the back and you can't see who it is on the stage. They're so yeah. small and so far away. 
and the mm. noise you make is designed. I mean, that's a symphonic venue, so it's designed to take everyone's sound and mush it together to make this big, beautiful mm. whole. It's not about specific detail. And then they put on those big band and orchestra gigs in there, and it does sound a little bit like underwater jazz anyway. So I'm not convinced that most of what we think is getting across to the audience is heard. So yeah. I genuinely don't think anyone would have noticed that note. No, I think That's you need to try time. much harder next time to do to do a, a more louder, louder more, more confident loud. mistake that we can you know really rib you about for the rest of your life because no one's mentioned that one which shows how unimportant it was. That's a shame. Mm. I was really angry. So you sort of failed in your failure in a way. Yeah, I did. Because <laughs> loud and proud, I didn't even manage that. It was like quiet and proud. <laughs> this is very interesting for me because I've long wondered how on earth you I don't mean that to sound uh like a negative when I say like how on earth what I don't understand is how you've become so like when you play lead alto in a big band you sound like it's the only thing you ever do and then when you play like solo contemporary saxophone it sounds like the only thing you ever do like your lead playing is so incredibly compelling and convincing how do you do so many different things so well on your saxophone? Because it's not easy. It's not something that many saxophone players can do at all. Otherwise, everybody would. Well, that's very kind of you to say. Um, I've been very lucky in that I've been given lots and lots of opportunities. I think I was lucky to be around before the instrument had really been pinned down and defined. And in order to make a living in Manchester, in the northwest of England, you have to be able to do lots of different things. You can't just do one thing. And it's the complete opposite in London. You're like, you're only allowed to do one thing. You know, I've had this conversation with lots of colleagues. They get pigeonholed as one thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's bizarre. I don't know. I've, I've, I've never really, you know, I wasn't brave enough to do that. Um, I've sort of made my peace with that now. But it's much healthier to be here. Yeah. I, but in yeah. Sense. Yeah. I think musically. So. Well, I don't know because I've not been there. You know, I'm trying not to. I'm getting to a point in my life where I'm trying not to make generalisations. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> left, so I've still got his friends. Um, but well, to, but to answer your question, you know, uh, um, and we sort of started off at this point before we went off on many of tonight's tangents. The, the, and the way that I teach the instrument now is about learning how to make the saxophone function is not to do with any style. And there's so much, and I see it, so many places that you travel, you know, you, you, you say, are you a classical saxophone player? What's classical saxophone? And there are even manufacturers make a, make a jazz saxophone and a classical saxophone. I mean, what's that all about? Yeah, I find that. I really mean, Marcel Mule's involved in the design of the Mark VI. Yeah. I can live with a mouthpiece that goes either way. Well, yeah, but, but that's just designed to make your job easier, isn't it? Yeah. That's, you know, and so... What you have to do is learn the, the fundamentals of the instrument and not... Often, and that's another generalization there, are less often fundamentally explained to a student so that they understand how to make it work. I know most of my students will be laughing at me now because there have been some, little, some of those little ad libitum video trailers or there's a, there's a little clip of me going, one of the things I like to ask my students is, how does the saxophone work? And they're all taking the mickey out of me at the moment all the time about <laughs> it. Every time I turn the corner, they go, Rob. How does the saxophone work? Which is, Just I'm, I'm proud of them that they yeah. feel, that they feel they can do that. Um, you just have to start it and stop it, and be able to move your. You know, everything that happens on the saxophone is your fault. It's not. You know, there's one next to us now. Rob's very shiny uh, series two 
Tenerife. Atmospheric sound. It's here in, in atmosphere next to us. It's very shiny. Um, and uh, it's not making any sound at all. No. no matter how much we shout at it. And so whatever you do to it is the thing that makes the difference. So if you understand how to play loud and how to play quiet and how to make a bright sound and a dark sound and how to articulate and when to move your jaw and when not to move your jaw, they're all just the same things. You've in my a, mind. Yes. You've written an amazing book. I did write a book, yes. Is it just called Playing the Saxophone? I know. Can you guess what it's about? I should know. I know. It kind of gives it away, doesn't it? I think I have two copies of this book. Mm. I've got, like, my one, and I've got the one that goes out with me to school every day. Very good. But even, like, I've been teaching the saxophone for 12 years, and I've been playing mine now for, like, what am I, 35? I think I've got about 28 years of saxophone playing. I, like, I refer to this book every day. For t- oh, you're random things. There's lots of mistakes in that first edition that I need to fix. Um, how do you get to know? How do you, I just don't understand how you learn so much about the saxophone when I don't know. A lot of what we do is so. What's the word? Ethereal. There's some great like advice about harmonics and techniques, and I, there's not even a question here. You know a lot about the saxophone. How yeah, long did was, it take you to write that book? I, I thought I would write it for my 10th anniversary at the RNCM. And so I sat down at the end of my 10th year and I thought, wow, it's a summer break now. I'll write that, do that for September. And then five years later, <laughs> I'd, wow. I'd sort of, um, I'd wrestled it to a point where I'd got so fed up with it that I wanted to get it finished and get it out there. Hmm. And even during the writing of the book, there were some things in there that were still coming together in my head. And, and, and again, I, I saw a lovely interview, just a little clip popped up on Instagram the other day of Bran, Branford Marsalis uh, chatting about something. And he was saying, I think, uh, that he'd read an article somewhere about the guy that had written the biography of Albert Einstein had made an interesting comment that none of the discoveries that Einstein made were original because all of the stuff that he discovered existed already all he did was figure out and put it in an order and, and and explain it in a way that people understood better than they did beforehand. You know, gravity was, it's not like it didn't happen until. Yeah. And, and, and I feel very much like that about the saxophone. You know, I'd be very privileged to somehow or other manage to land a teaching job at the RMCM when I was, well, I was too young, but I was 30. I was confident. Um, that was about it really. But, Every single visiting masterclass we've had from every one of the colleagues and now friends I have around the world who play the saxophone who are more experienced than me, be it classical virtuosi, jazz virtuosi, everything in between. Every student that's been through the college, my lifetime friends and colleagues, Andy and Carl, who teach there with me at the moment, and everybody else that's been involved, every single one of those people has presented some information or an opportunity or a perspective or something on the saxophone that I've had to think about, agree with, disagree with. It's made me question something about the instrument. And I have a sort of, I need to know how things work. Um, it's just, or maybe I get that from my dad. I was just going to say that. You know, he's, he's very practical. <laughs> yeah. He's just like, well, how does that work? Bang. You know, yeah. there's, there's an ADHD 
strand in our family. My dad would definitely be diagnosed as ADHD if that were a thing when in mm. 1938, when he was born, it was called Shut Up and Sit Still. So, you know, my brother, my youngest brother, two younger brothers, my youngest brother's just been diagnosed. He's 52. Um, That's my, a long my time middle to brother's wait for a 54. He's definitely, he has that, uh, uh, he has an ability to, be very cold and analytical about things and that's worked very well for him in his career um i see it in my one of my nephews has it is kind of used to, he sort of inherited it from two generations of my dad i've definitely got traits of that they become an asset to you if you live in an environment where repeating something again and again and figuring out how it works in great detail becomes a positive rather than really annoying <laughs> you know so yeah. that's why i that's why i i think why i enjoy it and why i found a home in teaching because it's a positive that I just repeat myself again and again and again and again mm. and again until I've made my point because that's actually what a student wants because your your learning is just like a serial port you can't I can't tell you everything I know about the saxophone not that not that mine is in any way complete but everything I know about the saxophone I can't deliver it to you in one go because you would hear the first three things and by the time you thought about them you haven't heard the rest so you have to go in again and again and again and again and again and you have to tweak it every time. Every student, again, as we were saying before this, till the tape started rolling, every every student you meet is neurally divergent. I like this new terminology. You know, there's no agenda to that. There's no hierarchy to that. Some people process things in one way, and some process in another. And our job as teachers and musicians is to figure out how to short circuit the the negatives in our processing and how to enhance the positives. So I guess that's a positive for me is just figuring out how something works and distilling yeah. it down to its simplest form. I mean, I think if you think about what's going on when you're improvising, you know, when you're a fantastic improviser, when you're standing up improvising with the rhythm section, for you to be listening to what's going on, to understanding if there is a chord structure or if it's a free thing or whatever, what's going on, what you're listening to, how to respond, what the contextual language that you can use or what's appropriate for you to use in that situation that's so much mental capacity yeah if the operation of the saxophone is complex something's going to fail yeah you're either going to stop thinking musically and think technically or the technical stuff is going to fail so if you make the technical stuff unbelievably simple and straightforward which it is yeah then there's enough headspace left to do something with it my feeling about improvising is it's got to get to the point where it's like talking to someone if it's not as easy as just saying words, you're screwed. Yeah, yeah. Because if you can't listen to what, like, if you're playing with, like, piano, bass, and drums, and they're throwing stuff at you, and you can't react quick, like, instantaneously to what you hear, then they're going to be bored out of their minds. Yeah, exactly. Well, they'll just stop talking. It's like when somebody yeah. talks over you. Although I'm acutely aware I just did that to you. But no, no, I do. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you want me, to, you want me to talk? It's a podcast. Um, <laughs> but that, that kind of thing, eventually you just stop listening, don't you? Yeah. So... And that fascinates me. Brains fascinate me. Mm. They really do in the way that you, that you can learn throughout your life, the way that you can pick up new skills and change things. I like that. Who are your favourite musicians? Well, that's a big question. Gosh. Um, I can tell you some of your favourites. Well. If that gets things... <laughs> Obviously, apart from you, Rob. Um, yeah, who's second to me? Second only to <laughs> the legend on the jazz podcast. Um, there's lots of musicians who have sort of been 
It's like, you know, when you open your, your oh, I can say iPod. I still have an iPod because I like the idea that there's music on it. But now it's so trendy. Like, is it? People would kill for an iPod Oh, now. it's so trendy. Nobody no, can I'm, phone you. You can just listen I've to stuff and be left ever. alone. But when you look at your, you know, most listened to tracks, it can yeah. tell you what your, you know, that, mm. I think that's quite interesting. When you is your iPod across, scroll? Is it like yeah, a circle? Yeah, it's a circle on. It's an old Oh, my God. Wow. With a button in the middle. God, they're gorgeous, those ones. That's quite interesting when you look at your most listened to tracks. It's like interesting so those people are more important to me i mean you know the top of my list pat Matheny would be up there mm. I, I uh i can remember where i was the first time i heard that minuano six eight thing off of yes. still life talking in the car driving back from london after a coaching session with our quartet we would spend a week with john harl doing some really early work on developing an individual sound on the quartet and he was saying oh you should listen to this listen to this yeah keep like, going pat who you know put this thing on literally life-changing moment something something's happening something's happening with a cat oh no it's not no, no it's my pat Matheny real book well, there we are. Any man who's written enough music to have their own real book. Have you seen the Pat? They've seen the bigger one though. There's a Pat Metheny songbook. Songbook. It's got every single song with all the scoring in it. Oh, you gonna have to throw this. Real and then you can buy things like The Way Up. You know, the CD of The Way Up. It's got the full orchestral score. You know, I've got that. Yeah, that's in here somewhere as well. I think that's just there. And I love. And, yeah. I, and I like. You know, Pat's a real composer. He's a real composer, and and he's a, he has a, a melodic gift. And a rhythmic, you know, my favourite things in the world musically, you know, if you take that giant musical triangle in the sky that has rhythm, melody and harmony on each corner. Yes. I love the rhythm side. Yeah. I'd quite like to have been a drummer. I, I, rhythm, I find, f I just really like it. And I like melody. And harmony, for me, is less, is, is not at the top of that hierarchy without diminishing its importance obviously but for me i relate to a melody and i relate to rhythm mm. and that's i think pat's music speaks to me like that he's a great example it, it hooks me in the tune exactly james we're looking at james in the pat Metheny real book this was written for james taylor a tribute to him um another great guitarist and a singer songwriter where pat's written a really strong melody He's written harmony that on the face of it is quite complex, but it's actually really diatonic and all it does is serve the melody. Yeah. It's not, it doesn't need to be any more complex than to make your melody sound better. Yes. This tune, if you don't know it, listeners, turn this off and go listen to James. <laughs> turn this off. And then, press, and then press play on this and <laughs> come back for our, not that we're going to give it any meaty analysis, but this is everything that's great about Pat Metheny because it's a beautiful melody chords just float by if you play over it you can really you can really dig into it and overcomplicate it or you can just play some major scales it's and a, exactly it's a great example it. because the melody seems to be independent of the chords and the chords seem to serve the melody and i and i struggle i don't have a very good scalic harmonic knowledge my brain we're talking about being neurodivergent my brain has a there's a glitch when we, if you could do a brain scan there'd be a bit missing the in, scales bit the scales bit's not there and the harmony bit therefore suffers as a result but if i can find a melodic way through something when i'm trying to improvise and impersonate a jazz musician um I'm, I'm happy and then that works like that there's it's incredibly complex harmony that i just don't understand but it all seems to make sense mm. 
And then if you if you if you take something that's much more harmonically orientated, I kind of struggle to get in, and that's the failing on my part. But as I said before, I think we all have strengths and weaknesses, and you you gravitate towards those. I mean, not all music's for all people, is it? So I do like a tune. Yeah, tunes are great. I do like a tune, and I, I like I like if you take something really simple. I mean, you know, there's some stuff in my book. We talked about my book earlier. Uh, you know, the, the central philosophy of the teaching in it is centered on just one note and all of the things you can do to one note. And I love the idea of, you know, a semi-brief is 32 opportunities to do something, 64 opportunities to do something with line, dynamic, colour, vibrato, phonetic, emotion. If you, su- you know, the superimposition of those ideas through one note, I think is, that's what interests me. You know, everywhere I go in the world, someone's got a saxophone. I was I was in Andorra recently at the Andorra Saxophone Festival on the jury for this competition. These amazing young players. There were 105 saxophone players that have been selected to get through. Is this between France and Spain? Mm, this yeah, tiny right, little patch in there, yeah. It's like the Monaco, but up in the Pyrenees. Mm. It's a very beautiful place. And we listened to 105 performances of the same 10-minute programme uh, in the first round of this competition. Wow, like set works. Yep, set works. Groundhog Day, three days, half eight in the morning till six at night with a lunch break. Ned Ryerson? <laughs> yeah. And everyone had a saxophone and they all played all of the notes. So when you're, yeah. in, when you're in a world like that, actually the saxophone is not of interest. The repertoire is not of interest. What's interesting is what the person did to that music while they were in possession of that sound. Yeah. And and that's what fascinates me. Yeah. Um. That's the most interesting thing to me. The instrument is not interesting. Your technical ability to do all these amazing things, of course we need to be able to do them, but not for their own ends. You know, it has to serve uh, some kind of creation of something Mm -hmm. rather than some kind of recreation of something. Well, it's very self-serving, but that's exactly what made me so compelled to go to the RMCM was to become the kind of saxophone player where you could just like, hopefully I'll leave and I'll be able to play it. And then I'll go away and figure out what music I want to make. And whatever I'm doing, I won't be bogged down in. Do you think it's, I I think it's, I think it's interesting that actually if you, if you follow that to its logical conclusion, then if you take a set piece of music Mm -hmm. and we all get brought up in that sort of exam syllabus mentality when we're kids and you have to do that right. And there's a dot on that note and you have to do that. If you look at the, 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 the quality that separates us from our peers, so why you like player A or player B or player C, mm. therefore, it's what that player did to the music that wasn't written down. What's mm. the extra information that they added that isn't in the part? Because everybody does what's in the part. Yeah. So therefore, in a funny sort of way, if what's in the part is deemed as being right, what you do wrong is the thing that makes you sound like you. So yeah. your mistakes, your idiosyncrasies, the things you can't do. You know, if you can't, if you play on an old Mark VI alto and you don't have an F sharp key, so your top F sharp's got a kind of a, a kind of energy to it mm. that someone who's got an F sharp key on a modern saxophone doesn't have. Every time you play a phrase that has that note in it, there'll be an emotion and a sound in that that's unique. Yeah. And that becomes a thing that people connect with rather than the ability to do it right. You know, we spend so much of our lives, don't we, trying to, to achieve this sort of notion of, of perfection or whatever yeah. it is. And actually, the desired result lives beyond that, which is imperfection. 
but in a slightly more consistent way, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, those are the bits that make it human. Yeah. I can think of loads of like old like Sonny Rollins recordings, yeah. bits with squeaks and bits of like Mike Brecker that, that where he like belate, like he misses harmonics and he doesn't just miss them, you hear him yell out. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, How yeah, the yeah, fuck yeah, did yeah. I miss that? Yeah, yeah. And then he goes back for it and he gets it. And <laughs> when people show their like humanity in that way, it makes you it draws me in. And it's difficult That's because, you, you know, that in an improvising context, if you go for a phrase and you can't make it, you can restructure what you're doing and go for it mm-hmm. again and again and again. And actually the struggle is interesting. Obviously, the classical side of that, and I hate those terms, but it's a notated side of, mm. of saxophone play, is that a, a composer who may or may not know how well to write for the instrument and what's hard and what isn't has put down some challenges and you have to try and make them work regardless of whether you would choose to do them when you're improvising. And, you know, I hear that all the time. It's funny existing in a world where I play in a, in a, in a notated and an improvisation or a classical and jazz context and, and try and pretend I can do either of those, you know. You, you often hear an old school jazz musician going, oh, it's all right for those straighty players because the, the composer's just written it down. They don't even have to think. They just do what it says on the page, which, of course, is very disingenuous. And then you hear the other thing of the classical orchestral player maybe saying, well, it's all right for you jazz players because you just make it all up. Yeah. And both of those are a misconception yeah, and actually, the truth lies somewhere in the middle, doesn't it? So, if you have an ability of to to make the instrument do everything, and then you can think of everything, then I think that's the point of of learning both ends of the tradition, notated and oral. Yeah, absolutely. That really saved me going to do jazz auditions and having that discipline of like when you were like when I auditioned at jazz college, I went to like these academy auditions where. You played the head of Take the A Train. You were allowed to improvise over two choruses and then you didn't even play the end head. They just stopped you when you left. And then listen to, I don't know how many people do this, but the fact that I train, like, let's call it notationally, Mm. to be like, the music says be good now. Mm. Be ready to do it now. You know, that kind of discipline is a really valuable and painful way to learn. But didn't they, didn't they say at the time when you auditioned, because there were like how many people auditioned for the Academy Jazz Course, but the reason that you got picked was you were the, one, you were the only people that had a sound. I could just play the sax. I thought it appealed to them <laughs> yeah. because I had no harmonic knowledge. But Yeah, exactly, like, ironically, because yeah. that can be learned. But if you, if, you ha- if you can't make a sound on the instrument, yeah. that's a whole heap of different yeah. learning, isn't it? Yeah, it's like they'll, I'll be the kind of student they want yeah. because they'll be like, we could show this guy how to play jazz but we'd have to deal with how to play the saxophone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm absolutely convinced that's how I got in. <laughs> Teachers would have been like, this will be fun. This will be, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, Rob, thank you so much for coming on the Jazz Podcast. What an incredible experience. For me, I've learned so much about, it's explained to me how you are as good as you are, which I've enjoyed very much. So thank you very much. You're very kind. Thank you for the curry and the wine. Match made in heaven. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to the Jazz Podcast. We will see you next week. We've got some amazing shows in store, so please tune in, tell your friends, family, anyone you fancy, really, and we'll see you soon. Mm -hmm.